Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're going to talk this uh, morning about uh, the promise of rescue and blessing. And you, you noticed one of the songs, they were talking about the rescuer who had come, and we, ta- we sang about blessing as well. But I want to begin by reading out of uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And I want you to see part of Mary's joyful response to the angel and also to something that Elizabeth said. In verses 54 to 55, it says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary saw in the pronouncement the fulfillment of of a promise that God made to the patriarchs, to David, and to the ancestors, which could be traced through the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecies were not just a disconnected and scattered bunch of predictions, but they were offshoots from a common stem, a promised plan that God had for the world. And over the centuries, God would offer up new puzzle pieces of this one promise, which would form a cohesive picture fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But why such an elaborate plan shrouded in such mystery? Well, it would take, first of all, it would take centuries for God to gain the number of people that he would want for his coming kingdom, and there's going to be many people in his kingdom, amen? And it would take many centuries to get those kinds of people, those that would follow him on the narrow road, take many centuries. Secondly, over all those centuries, God had to outwit the serpent and his seed so they couldn't destroy his plan to save many people for himself. Recall Herod's satanically inspired attempt to kill the Christ child? That's why Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So let's put together a Christmas puzzle. Do you like Christmas puzzles? Do you like puzzles? 
Do you like Christmas puzzles? I've been saying to Fran for the last week, I, I would like to put a puzzle together. And, uh, and let's put together the Christmas puzzle beginning with a corner piece. And we'll start in Genesis for that. 4,000 years before Christ, roughly, Satan stole Adam and Eve's allegiance to God, tempting them to eat from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they disobeyed, they gained experiential knowledge of evil as they suffered the consequences of the fall. God pronounced the specific, the specific curses that would befall mankind, and Satan gloated, thinking he had succeeded in ruining God's good creation. But God... Can you say that with me? But God. One more time. But God. Satan thought he had outwitted God, but God had a plan, and he made a promise based on that plan. Tucked in the middle, right in the middle, or the center of those curses, God promised blessing. And we see it in Genesis 3.15. We've looked at it before. I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed, that's the serpent seed, and her seed, Eve's seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The promise here sums up human history, doesn't it? And it lays out a plan to rescue mankind, though a little obscure, from this curse. There are going to be two human lines which will be at odds uh, with each other. That's the A part that you see on the screen. The instrument through whom the victory will arise springs from humanity. That's Eve's seed. The pronouns, he and him, are in the masculine singular, indicating that Eve's seed is to be one person and that the per that person is a man. Unfortunately, some of the translations, like my NIV uh, and others, they, they translate it as descendants. But you're missing the rich theology behind it because Paul said in Galatians, not, see, not seeds, but seed. So sometimes uh, when you read seed, and they should always translate, uh, translate it from the Hebrew zar that way, it represents one person. It's talking about one person representing a whole group of people, and at other times it, it, it referred to the group of people themselves. But Paul is arg argues that he's talking about seed, and we'll see that Eve seemed to understand it that way as well. Here is intimated the seed's virgin birth. It's implied only. It's not explicit, as it is in Isaiah 7.14. As it says, her seed. Uh, but remember, God is being obscure because he's outwitting the devil. Normally, bib biblical genealogies ran through the man, not the woman. And there's a strong hint, E, of his suffering. Satan will bruise his heel, but ultimately, F, the serpent or Satan will once for all be defeated as his head is bruised or crushed, as some translations put it. But how did Adam and Eve understand this? And we'll see it in Genesis chapter 4, 1. It seems to indicate that they viewed this as a seed, not seeds, they were viewing this not as descendants, but a descendant, a unique descendant that would come. Uh, because uh, this is what it says, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. That's an unfortunate 
translation because it literally says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It is. Though misapplied to her firstborn, Cain, it seems that Eve understood that the seed would overcome the serpent, that, that would overcome the serpent was not only a human, but that this person somehow had Jehovah mixed in him as well. But it's very obscure, very, very obscure. But we see the hints of it. In chapters 4 to 5 of Genesis, we see the hostility between the two lines as Cain killed Abel, as the storyline continues. God then replaced righteous Abel with Seth, who had godly descendants in his lineage, like Enoch and Noah, who both were said to have walked with God. Yet the entire line of Cain and most of Seth's line became very wicked to the point that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was now only what? Was only what? Evil. So God decided to reboot, as we say it today, the human race by ridding the earth of all evil people through the flood and restarting with a righteous Noah. Yet no sooner had they left the ark, Noah and his family, and we find Noah drunk and Ham doing something so bad that it warranted a curse on his entire lineage. This proved that evil had infected mankind and couldn't be eradicated by ridding the world of bad people. Clearly, more was needed. So who was this mysterious seed of the woman, this male figure who God promised would rescue mankind from the curse? Well, we get a, another piece to the puzzle added to the picture when God says in Genesis 9, when uh, Noah pronounced uh, after this bad deed by Ham, uh, Noah made a pronouncement, and in it he said, Cursed be Canaan, Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him, the pronoun referring back to the subject of the previous line being God or Jehovah, let God dwell in the tents of Shem. So suddenly we see that there's a blessing that is moving and it's narrowing. God is going to do something. There's a plan and it's narrowing down to Shem's line, not Ham, not Japheth. And the next several chapters designate Shem as first in honor of blessings. Sure enough, Shem's genealogy moved quickly without added commentary, ending up with who? With who? Hey, there is only one name in that line there. So that's a, that's, this is not too difficult. Ending with who? Abraham. Exactly. Abraham is in the line of Shem. Can you believe it? God would indeed dwell in the tents of Shem through Abraham. Now let's read what God, how God expands the promise that he's already made to Adam and Eve. And we've seen a little detail added there about Shem. And there's other ones that we, gotta, we just got to skim over uh, for today because of time. But now we get to Abraham and God's same promise. And now he expands on the promise. And this is what he says. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make you a what? Great nation. There's one of the uh, pieces, new features of the promise. 
I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors or curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families or nations of the world will be what? They'll be blessed. Wow. So the promise of a seed, this male figure who would bring deliverance from the curse, remained the central focus of the promise to Abraham as seen in one of the five expansions. Now, when God made, took the promise and he added features to it, he, 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 he talked to Abraham about the promise five times. He did it in 12, like we just read. Did it again in 13, in 15, 17, and 22. And he, and he gave different pieces of the promise, gave him new features or elements or aspects of the promise that hadn't been seen before. And one of them was, in 22 verse 18, in your, what's the word? Ha, huh, have you seen that word before in this message? Where, where did we see it? In Genesis 3.15, there it is again. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what God had said to Adam and Eve about this obscure male figure there somehow, in the midst of those curses, is now going to be a blessing to the nations. And uh, the promise now expanded to include new features not seen before. His name would be great national status or nation status. There would be land or a place for the nations. They would be a blessing to the nations. Jehovah would be Israel's God, and they his people. And kings would even come from Abraham's line. Isn't that interesting? Genesis 17, 6 uh, notes that. It says, I will make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you, and kings will come from you. See Abraham's response of faith to the expanding promise. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited, God credited to Abraham as what? Righteousness. The literal rendering of that underlined portion is he believed in Yahweh. He believed in the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Is that what we do? Do we believe in Jesus? Yes, we do. The object of faith was the content of the total promise, and the oldest and most central part of that promise was the seed, a male descendant, coming from the woman. Amen. Other features had been added to the promise, but at the center, at the core of the great promise, was the promise of a seed, a male descendant, who would deliver us from the curse that was placed on us at the fall. Amen? And Abraham believed in Yahweh and what he said in the content of that gospel. That's why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 that the gospel had been announced or preached in advance to Abraham. That's why he could say that. He and all Old Testament saints were saved through faith just like we are today. Now the promise moved from Abraham and then it transferred to who? Abraham and ah Abraham 
and Jacob. It transferred and, uh, as, as they came along. And Jacob had a son, Joseph. Remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers because of uh, jealousy. And uh, there, Joseph, <laughs> in an unusual move, rose to power, became, becoming only second in authority to the Pharaoh. And due to a famine in, the, the, in Canaan, Jacob, or Israel, as he was renamed, uh, and his brothers journeyed to Egypt, where they were reunited with their son and brother. And before he died, just before he died, Jacob called his sons to him to give them the blessing. Who did the promise transfer to? It transferred correctly to Judah. Now, Judah, was he the firstborn? And the answer is, no, he wasn't. Reuben was the firstborn, but he had defiled his father's marriage bed. And, uh, and Levi, Levi and Simeon were second and third, but they had uh, committed this outrageous revenge against the Shechemites for, uh, for defiling their, their sister. And so it skipped to the fourth in line, who was Judah. Now, something interesting happens there. The line of kings promised to Abraham is narrowed down to becoming through Judah. Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 says, The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. The underlined phrase there hints at a unique king who will appear at the end of a line or dynasty of kings to whom the kingdom... See, because the scepter would be just passed down the line. And, and what he's saying here is the scepter really didn't... That particular scepter didn't really belong to any one of them. They would just use it until the scepter would end up with a final one to whom the scepter actually belonged to. Meaning, that was his kingdom. Again, it's a little obscure, but we're starting to see, as we're putting the puzzle pieces together, it's getting a little clearer for us as we move down through history. Well, God had promised Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the grains of the sand, and he, went, and he took him outside and he said, I want you to look at the, sky, the heavens and I want you to count the stars, because that's how numerous your seed, plural, now the group, is going to be. And uh, when we get to Exodus, you know, there's a, there's a period of time. There's 400 years between Genesis and Exodus. And when we get to Exodus, it's just filled with theological wonders when you, be op when you open the first chapter, but here's one of them. In verse 7, we see the fulfillment of one aspect of the promise given to Abraham. It says, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly, and they became exceedingly what? They became very numerous, so that the land was filled with them, however, due to the huge growth. So that was a fulfillment of one aspect of the promise. True? Hey, and the fact that God, whenever you see that, God answered aspects of the promise, and the fact that he would answer one aspect or element or feature of the promise always gave them hope that he was going to answer the next one too. Is that true? That's going to be important as we get to the end. So it's important. 
However, due to the huge growth, the Egyptians enslaved them. And then God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant or promise to Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. God had promised to deliver Abraham's descendants after 400 years in captivity. Remember, I said he talked to Abraham about this promise from five different places. Well, in Genesis 15, he said after 400 years, they're going to come out of captivity. Well, God sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt to meet with them, him on Mount Sinai. Were they delivered? And the answer is, another feature of the promise was answered and was fulfilled. There God declared, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Was that a fulfillment of another aspect of the promise? And the answer is, yes, it's amazing. There the newly formed nation received the law from God. And now you're going, well, what does this have to do with the promise? Ah, the law. Like, where, where, how does that fit? Just hang on. Leviticus records the laws that Israel was expected to obey. In verse 5 of, of chapter 18, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, it, it sounds almost like a hypothetical offer that if they, if they do the law, they can somehow, if, if they can perfectly keep the law, they can somehow earn eternal life. Doesn't it sound a little like that? Yes or no? It, it sounds a little like that. But that, it wasn't a hypothetical offer of eternal life for perfect law-keeping. One of the ways of doing or obeying the law was to recognize the imperfection of one's life and then make a sacrifice for the atonement of one's sins. Is that true? Was the sacrificial system part of the law, yes or no? Yes. It was provided there because the law assumed and provided for lawbreakers. <laughs> Are you glad about that? You know, people always say, well, that, that was the law, and now we have grace. No, there was grace in the law. Is that true? Absolutely. It's filled with grace. This is the standard. You won't make it, so here's the sacrifice. True? So that you can have fellowship with God. And a fellowship with God when broken by sin was rectified by God's forgiveness on the basis of a ransom as God ordained it. Leviticus 17.11 says, It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. That was the principle. Humans, by their sin against God, owed their very lives as a sort of a, I don't know how else to put it, but like a forfeiture to God. But God provided that animals' lives should serve as a substitute for the time being as a picture. We're used to pictures around here, right? As a picture of what God would ultimately one day do. God would provide his own final substitute, a man who had not sinned. Forgiveness and removal of guilt could not come cheaply. So somehow a male descendant <laughs> uh, to rescue mankind from the curse 
a king, an unusual kind of king at the end of some dynasty, and a sacrifice for sin are all somehow part of this promise as we've put the puzzle together so far. Let's move on. Keeping with the promise of future kings, um, we see the promise now developing. We move down through the centuries. We get to David. We skip over a bunch of other ones that we could show. God instructed Samuel to anoint David with oil to be king. Now, every time they, put, they anointed a person with oil to be king, do you know what it signified? Do you know why they always said that? It signified that the Spirit was coming on that individual to help or give aid to them to rule the nation. That's why, they, that, that's why they were anointed. It signified that. And do you know what it says in the passage right after it says that Samuel anointed David? Do you know what it says? It says that the Spirit came rushing on him mightily. And do you know what it says in the verse right after that? It says that the Spirit left Saul. Interesting. Fascinating. Uh, just kind of tuck that in the back of your head for later. So, David became king over all Israel, had defeated all his enemies. He wished to build a temple for the Lord. However, during the night, God came to Nathan the prophet and said, go back to David and tell David that he's not going to... Uh, I don't want him building me a house because I'm going to build a house for him. Remarkable, isn't it? The house he was referring to was the house of David or a dynasty for David, as he explains in 2 Samuel, the classic passage on that, although some of it's expanded in the Psalms as well. Many elements of the message delivered to David in 2 Samuel were repetitions of features already seen in the promise given to the patriarchs and Moses, like a great name. Was that? <laughs> did, we, did we see that in Genesis 12 with Abraham, a great name? Yep. Did we see a place or land for Israel? And the answer is yes. Did we see seed? Oh my goodness, there it comes again. Same promise. It was in Genesis 3.15. It was in, in, in Genesis 22. We're seeing it now in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. Did we see all nations blessed through him? Yes. Same feature. It's still here. Jehovah would be their God and they his people. Same feature. But there's two new added features now. The royal dynasty promised in Genesis 49.10 would not only come through Judah, but now it narrowed down to who? David of Judah. Exactly right. So now, we, you know, from this obscure figure to Shem to Abraham to Judah to David of Judah. It's narrowing down as we put the puzzle pieces together. If David's sons failed, here's the second feature of it, God would punish them, but his promise of an eternal Davidic dynasty would endure. Aren't you glad about that? Church, are you glad about it? Are you glad that God's promise established in eternity past is not dependent on the faithfulness of mankind. It's a dependent on God's faithfulness and His Word. Amen? Oh, that's something to be excited about, rejoice about. 
But what's that all about? No human dynasty has ever lasted very long, has it, in history? From Genesis 49:10, we already know that the dynasty ends up with a king ruling to whom the kingdom belongs. But who is this obscure figure? Well, we get a glimpse in something David wrote in Psalm 110.1. It's called a messianic psalm. There's Psalm 2 and 89, 70, 72 and 89, 110 and so forth. Jesus drew attention to this curious verse in a dispute with the Pharisees. And this, he brings up a riddle from Psalm 110.1. Okay, so here we go. They try to trip him up, the Pharisees. So Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ or Messiah? By the way, anytime you see anointed one, Messiah or Christ, it's all the exact same thing. One's a transliteration, the other one's a translation. Okay? Same thing. And he says, whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He, Jesus, said to them, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and now he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Can you, have you read this riddle before? Have you scratched your head over this riddle before? The Lord said to my Lord, this is David writing now, so he says, and it's in capital, uh, capital, capitals, Lord, is Jehovah there, and it says, the Lord says to Adonai, my Lord, David is saying that, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he then be his son? Is that a riddle? That's a riddle. Yes, it's a riddle. And the answer to the riddle, of course, is that the one who is a human descendant of David is also divine. He's human and he's divine. He's God. He's both. Well, David implied, and, and we see that he's going to be a future king in the very next verses, Psalm 110. Uh, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You uh, will rule in the midst of your... So that Lord, that was part of the riddle, is also going to be this future king. So God, David was implying that there was a king coming in his dynasty who would somehow be human and divine. The puzzle pieces are coming together. Well, we move on to the prophets, uh, the latter prophets, I should say. From David's time onward, a stream of writing prophets kept appealing to the promise, the plan that God had given to the patriarchs and to David. Their messianic passages, the passages about the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, uh, were mostly repetitions, as we've seen, with some supplements or new features, amplifying on the promised plan already revealed up to that point. And though Israel would be desolated for her rebellion, because that's what they were always warning, you're going to be judged, you're going to be judged. And they were. Were they desolated? Yes. But there's a great hope and promise. Isaiah predicted that a holy remnant would, like a stump, survive after the tree or Israel was felled. And we see that in Isaiah 6.13. Though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. The tree is going to be cut. 
But as the uh, terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. God was not going to annihilate it completely because there was a holy remnant. And out of that stump was going to come a shoot or a branch. And you read about it all the time in the prophets. Do you read about the branch? You wonder what that is? A shoot would come out of that stump or a branch. And we see that in Isaiah 11.1, uh, from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jeremiah identified this branch as the great Davidic king to come. Oh my goodness. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. A what? Look at that. That shoot, that branch that's coming out is that Davidic king that they've been talking about all along, who is somehow implied to be divine and human. <clears throat> and Isaiah leaves no doubt that this branch Davidic king is divine. He says, and we sang about it before, we were all worshiping to it. Wasn't it amazing? What a Christmas passage. For to us a... Read it with me. Please read it with me. Here we go. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Amen. Right? This divine, human, Davidic king who is a branch coming out of the stump of Israel would bless the nations by ruling them with justice and righteousness. Are you looking forward to that? Amen? Oh, I am too. But there's more. Zechariah explicitly says that the branch is also called a servant. See, Zechariah 3, verse 8 says, I'm going to bring my servant the branch, who is that Davidic king. Why is this so important? See what else Isaiah says about the servant king who will bless the nations by ruling over them with, a just, with justice and righteousness. Let's go to Isaiah 52. Now you know where I'm going. See, my servant, who is a branch, who is the Davidic king, who is human and, and, uh, and divine, God, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. In the very next uh, chapter, he says, He was pierced, he, my servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, and on and on it goes. This same divine Davidic king, a branch of the stump of Israel, or a shoot of the branch of Israel, who would one day bless the nations by ruling over them with justice and righteousness, also will bless the nations by being the substitutionary sacrifice for the nations. Look what he says in verse 15 of, of 52, right in that passage. So will he sprinkle many nations with his own blood. 
The puzzle pieces are coming together to form an emerging picture. This mysterious male seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, who had blessed the nations, the sacrificial system for sin, the distant future Davidic king who is both human and divine, who would reign with justice and righteousness, not only over Israel but over the entire world, the suffering servant who would die for the sins of the world as pictured by the elaborate sacrificial system, all draw together in one promised plan in one person, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. Amen? Is that powerful? But when would this suffering Messiah King appear? Those details would be pieced together nearly two centuries later by Daniel. When Daniel read Jeremiah's prophecy, in chapter, uh, Jeremiah 25, that Judah would return from 70 years of Babylonian captivity. He prayed for that. The angel Gabriel informed Daniel that God had heard his prayers. And then Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, revealed something else. He added something else. The timeline of when that messianic king would come who would atone for our sins, as explicitly already stated by Isaiah. Daniel 9, 25, 26. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Messiah Christ, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. That's sixty-nine sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets in a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The time from a decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah would equal 400, if you take those sevens, would be 483 years. The decree that he's talking about when they were told they should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild was under Artaxerxes I. That was in 454 B.C. If you add 483 years to 454, you come to 30 A.D. What happened in 30 A.D.? In 30 A.D., Jesus came up out of the Jordan having just been baptized by John the Baptist. Right? And do you know what came down? The Spirit came down, signifying that this was the Anointed One. This was the Messiah. This was the Christ. There is the timeline. And then it says, right at the end of verse 26, it says, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Daniel implies what Isaiah had already explicitly said, that this Messiah will die. Now, what's significant here is this, that Messiah dies before he reigns. You can see it right in this passage, right here. At the end of that time, he dies. That's amazing. All of this was prophesied 490 years before it happened. Little wonder that Simeon and Anna were waiting ex expectantly, according to Luke chapter 2. In fact, it says 
that Simeon, when he, when he was told by the Spirit he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah or the Christ or the Anointed One. And when he sees him, he said, Lord, now you're, I've seen him. Your servant may depart in peace. You know what Anna does? After she sees the Christ, she leaves and goes into the temple course, and she tells others, it says there, who were waiting, expecting, expectantly. And she tells them, he's here. I've seen him. That's incredible when, uh, when that happened. That's what Philip Brooks meant in his song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, when he wrote, the hopes and fears of all the years are met or drawn or come together. The puzzle piece comes together of the plan and the promise in the face of the person of Jesus Christ, the Davidic King who came to die for our sins and one day rule and reign over the nations. That's how he blesses the nations. The first time he came, at his first advent, they were to wait expectantly for him to bless the nations by dying for him. And Simeon understood that. He was not mistaken about that. He said, uh, he looked at Mary and he said, a sword will pierce your soul. He understood that. The fact that God has kept all these elements and features of this promise along the way and the fact that he has already kept his promise about this Davidic king, this Messiah anointed one who would die for our sins, means that the last piece that's left to be fulfilled of the promise is going to happen. Amen? We can trust that it's going to happen. And so, we are now to wait expectantly for His second advent when He will bless the, the nations by ruling over them with truth, justice, and righteousness. O come, Lord Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Amen.